Thank you very much. Um, and welcome, everyone. And um, it's, it's great to be here with Grace and Chris. Can everyone hear me? Yep. All right. So uh, these are both books that revolve around killing and questions, as, as Anand has said, about nonfiction and how these different writers have responded to different kinds of murder. Um, they, they are very, I first want to say they're very unusual books. Uh, I found them both highly original, um, very engaging, um, quite difficult. The subject matter is obviously quite difficult, and that's something I want to pursue. Um, and I'll ask if, about three rounds of questions to each of the the writers, and then I'd like to open it up to you to carry on the discussion in a more informal way. Um, so, Grace's book, A Death Retold in Truth and Rumor, I was thinking it sounds a bit like a Gabriel Garcia Marquez title, in a way, <laughs> slightly magical realist title, uh, Kenya, Britain and the Julie Ward Murder, published last year, and uh, Chris Monowick's Shepherds and Butchers, published in 2008 originally. And uh, an Afrikaans version is forthcoming. No, it's out already. It's out already, okay. Um, so the, the murder at the heart of, of this book is, is a single murder of a, of a woman called Julie Ward um, in 2000 and, uh, I beg your pardon, 1988. And the series of murders that give rise to this book uh, happened in 1987. Is that right? The executions were in 87, but the murders occurred from 84 onwards. Mm. So, I mean, let, let, let me ask the normal question about what, what, what brought you to these projects. I mean, Grace, I, 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 was, I have to say I wasn't that familiar with, with the story of, of, of Julie Ward. I recognized the picture which, as you say, um, went around the world and became quite an iconic uh, picture. There she is holding a young chimpanzee. It sort of signifies the way the story got caught up in ideas of conservation and humanitarianism and African Edens. Um, but I, it, it struck me that this kind of murder, this murder of Julie Ward, a young British woman in the Masamara, it came to have um, a huge presence in Kenya and you know as we as we would say in our in our departments it became overdetermined i.e. it became about so much more than what it seemed to be about um, and so maybe it was similar to you know the Amy Beale story here or Riva Steenkamp or maybe even Inga Lotz closer to closer to where we are so you know can you talk us through a bit what this what this murder meant in Kenya and why you were drawn to write a book about it Thank you so much, Hedley, and um, thanks, a big thank you to the festival organizers. It's a great pleasure to be here, and thanks to Salian for that generous introduction, and it's really wonderful to be in conversation with the two of you. Thank you. Um, so I didn't actually set out to write about Julie Ward, and I mentioned this in, in the book because it's a question that kept coming up every time I would present uh, and some of the work in conferences I would be asked, but it's such an unusual Thing to work on, so what drew you to this particular case? And I started out looking at rumors about high-profile murders and assassinations in Kenya, and we have a whole list of this in the country which have attracted a lot of media attention, a lot of outrage, public outrage in the country over the years since um, Kenya's independence in 1963 all the way to right now as we speak, that we're now at that moment where one of the ways in which um, the country is dealing with the problem of terror manifesting in the shape of the Al-Shabaab um, phenomenon next door in Somalia is apparently through, again, basically be building hit lists and sort of forms of high-profile um, eliminations of suspected terrorists. So there's a whole long history of this, and I was intrigued by these, and I wanted to write a book about the ways in which Kenyans use rumor to make sense of these high-profile political and politicized assassinations and murders. But as I worked on it, as I 
did the research, one of the things I noticed was that Julie Ward was one of these figures on the list, but her position on the list was very, it was very ambiguous, so she kept coming up and receding. She kept, sometimes she was very prominently present and sometimes she was not very present. Well, that wasn't the case with the other figures who tended to be men, they tended to be Kenyan, and they tended to be prominent political figures. So that drew me to her. I wanted to know what is going on with her and what kinds of um, work is her murder being put to over and above just the, the tragedy of this woman being murdered in Kenya. So that's what drew me to the case. Thanks, Chris. Um, and, and Chris, I, I heard you actually being interviewed by Eusebius Makaiser at one point, so, um, more, more skilled interviewer than I, and you mentioned that uh, it was a press, it was some press reports and then a TRC a hearing which sort of set you on this course. So could you talk us through that? Um, I've always had an interest in the death penalty. Um, my first knowledge of it or experience of it was when I was a, an eight-year-old boy reading the newspaper over my father's shoulder. And there was a particular murder that happened in uh, Pine Town where I eventually ended up as a prosecutor, which... Uh, was as big as the Pistorius case, as far as the publicity and everything was, was concerned. And, in fact, I've published a book about that through Nickel here, he's my publisher, mm. uh, Clarence von Buren, mm. um, sexual sadist and a psychopath. But that case came into my life at different stages over decades uh, until I decided that I wanted to write a book in Afrikaans. I approached Nicholas said, fine. I said, this is the one, and I, I then wrote that particular book. It's non-fiction, with my personal story interwoven with it. But Shepherds and Butchers was my first uh, novel. It's creative non-fiction, and it started, as you say, with reading the newspaper. By the time I read that newspaper on the 8th of December, 1987, I had conducted as defense counsel maybe 50, 60 murder trials where capital punishment was uh, involved. Um, I had been an inquest clerk, meaning that I had to read in a year 250 cases of people who had died unnatural deaths for that to be investigated and reported upon. So by the time I read that particular newspaper item, in December of 87. I had seen death come to people in so many ways, extraordinary ways. A person killed by a rhino, a schoolboy mowing his parents' lawn being electrocuted. Children, old people, people hanged. I'd seen death in every form. When I then read in the newspaper that seven people had been executed that morning in Pretoria, I thought nothing of it. The next day, I opened the evening paper and it said seven people had been executed in Pretoria that morning. And I thought, oh well, it's just a repeat of yesterday's article. And the third day, the 10th of December, I opened the newspaper, same thing, small column, maybe four or five inches. Seven people had been executed that morning. And then I took a good look and I saw actually that there were different names, so that they'd hanged 21 people in three days. Mm. And that stuck in the back of my mind. And not long after that, I was asked as a pro bono defense counsel to defend a young man of 18 who had shot his mother and his grandparents to death. And it was quite a cathartic experience for me because I was not a criminal lawyer at that time. I was a maritime lawyer as the main character in Shepherds and Butchers is. And to cut a long story short, eventually we ended up in New Zealand I taught there, I wrote a legal textbook, and then suddenly I found that I had nothing to do because teaching was just too easy. The intellectual effort that I had put into some of my cases was like a hundred times more than was required to teach law students. So then I decided I was going to write a, a book about the death penalty. And I first did it as a, an academic exercise to explain how everything worked. Ran myself into a brick wall of secrecy uh, about what really happened 
inside the death, death house um, until I had a breakthrough to actually meet someone who had worked there. Mm. And then when I now knew everything about the topic, it's like a doctoral thesis, you learn everything about a very small topic. You know nothing about the world outside that, but this little topic, you know everything. And then I needed a vehicle to, to make that known, because knowledge kept to yourself is useless. It's got to be shared. And I stumbled upon the, the vehicle of a, of a novel, using a fictitious murder, fictitious trial, fictitious characters to carry the facts of the execution system as we had it in South Africa at the time. Mm. That's, that's the long story. Um, I, I'd like to push a bit further about what kinds of book these are. Not, not that we need to um, nail them down or define them, but they both struck me as really, well, in both cases the research is outstanding and, and, and so textured. Uh, that really struck me. So when you say that it felt like doing a, a PhD thesis, I'm not surprised. Um, they're, they're kind of strange generic hybrids. Um, so, so Grace, your book, I saw one reviewer described it as an academic thriller, which I, I thought was interesting because, I mean, for those of you who haven't read it, um, it takes this murder of, of, of Julie Ward, a, a young British woman in the Masamara, so on the one hand, you're having to tell that story, which is a convoluted story. Um, and there are, it's a story of different theories of the death, whether it was murder, wild animals, even light, a lightning strike is advanced at one point. Lots of rumors circulating around. Uh, the British diplomatic service consul wanting to do damage control in a sort of strange relationship with, with, with Daniel Arab Moy's government. Very, very complex political and cultural situation. So on the one hand, you're telling that story, which is a very complex one. But at the same time, you're also reflecting on how the story has been told by different texts. Um, true crime, her father writes a book, or two books. One. one. He's busy with the second one. Okay, he's busy with the second one. So her father is still writing about this. Um, there have been other sort of true crime books. You, you make mention of a film. And I was also interested to learn that um, the Julie Ward sort of saga touches a book like um, The Constant Gardener by John mm. Le Carre, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's feeding that as well. So, you know, because I, I, I also get this in the challenge of my own work where, where I'm, I'm looking at real figures from history um, and I'm simultaneously trying, you know, you have to give their story, but then at the same time you're reflecting on what it means to tell a story, what gets left out, what gets emphasized, what that means in a larger cultural sense. So, you know, how, how did, how, how, what kind of book is this and how did you negotiate that kind of challenge? So that's a difficult question and I'm tempted to give the cliche writer's response, which is, it just happened, mm. which is the truth, mm. Mm. Um, but it also just never happens. I think for me, it was a very organic process, and I was instructed by the material I was dealing with, because I, was, I went into it expecting more or less neat, clear-cut um, storylines, and I got there, and I'm seated with puzzle pieces. Mm that refuse to sit together neatly into a complete picture, no matter how hard I try. And so part of the shape of the book is actually forced on me mm. by the material I was dealing with. I had to make peace with the fact that the various puzzle pieces will not sit together coherently. And part of what that meant was to approach them on their own terms and read their credibilities, because each of these are um, each of these is a form of textual engagement with his murder. And each of these texts, whether it's the rumors or the media articles or the, or, the, or the inquest transcripts, each of these believes in its own truth. Yes. And so part of the process for me was I had to step out of a logocentric or a single 
sort of a, a one-lane understanding of what truth entails and to step out of that and to approach this material on the basis of what they consider to be truth, to be credible, mm. to be legitimate, to make sense. And I had to let them do that kind of work, which meant then not forcing them to speak to each other in the same language or coherently. And so once I, I lent myself to that process, I could allow my material to do the kind of work it was doing. So that's one bit of it. The other bit of it is I wanted, I am invested in academic ideas becoming, being accessible to readerships beyond the academy. Because I think that's the only way, it's an ethical issue, I think, for me, that ideas cannot be just an elite conversation between academics, and especially in a case like this, where it had huge implications for just public discourse in Kenya. So part of that meant trying to make it, and I'm glad, I'm glad my reviewer thought it is an academic thriller, because I, I, I really feel flattered by that description, because I needed it to be. Which you don't often get with an academic monograph. Right? Thank you. Mm. So I'm really grateful for that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, I'll follow up on that in a second. Um, so, Chris, let me, let, me, let me try and get my understanding of what the book is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So, over 4,000 people were killed by the state in the, in the, in the gallows of Pretoria yes. Central, right? In 1987, 187 people were killed. 154. 164, maybe. Okay. It's in the book. I can't okay. remember, but it's... And then, as you say, in this particular three-day period, 21 people yes. were hanged. So, and so, so that, those facts and the facts of the cases that brought people to death row, that's the sort of documentary yes. substrate of your book. Then you take, you, now you put it into a novelized form, you've called it creative nonfiction, about a warder who has been um, an escort at these hangings and has... You know, so the title of the book, uh, it's a great title, I think, Shepherds and Butchers. It's from a line by Voltaire, a government must have shepherds and butchers. So these escorts, these young warders would have to care for the accused on death row. They would read, read Bibles to them. They would spend all day with them sometimes. They would minister to them. And then they had to lead them to, to the gallows and literally hold their arm as, as the trapdoor was released. Um, so you then, out of this fact, you spin the story of a young warder who has been part of this sort of almost industrial production line of death yes. mm -hmm. uh, during this particular period, and he then, he's in a road rage incident, and he shoots seven young boys, uh, deep slut, members of the Deep Slut Karate Club, and he's then, now he, a death row warder, is on trial yes. uh, for his life. Um, so it's a bold move. Yes, but you know, you're a writer yourself. That's what we do. Mm. We make bold moves. Mm. We set, we create difficulties for our characters. Mm. Sometimes without knowing how they would deal with it. And then the thing develops from there. The title, by the way, comes, as you say, from a quotation from Voltaire. I had done all this research and I had actually had interviews with this man, his name is Steinberg, Steinbach. He lives in Pretoria, he's got an ordinary household, a nice guy, he's working in the building industry, mm. um, who disclosed the secrets of the gallows room to me. Uh, he'd also testified before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but at a very superficial level. Okay. I paid him for his information. I said to him, I want to know everything. I gave him a tape recorder and I asked him, I think it was 72 questions. And he answered every single one of them. So I had all of that information, including information about how participating in the execution process had affected him and some of the other uh, warders, who were mostly young white men. Mm. And because most of the prisoners were black, when I say most, 90% of them, there was a disconnect between the white and the black there in the emotional attachment that you would normally have to a person in distress. Due to the apartheid era, that's just how things were. Mm. But I could sense that there was distress within him about his particip participation in the process. I sensed that mostly when he spoke about reading the Bible to prisoners, mm. 
He said most of them were illiterate, but they became converted while waiting for their death. But they couldn't read the Bibles that they were issued with. Mm. On the day that they enter there, they get issued with a prison uniform, clothes, shoes, so on, a Bible, and a a short toothbrush. They break the brush off about this far from the, the brushes so that they can't sharpen it and stab someone with it. So that's the prison issue. Mm. So the distressing part to him was reading the Bible and then later participating in the execution. Mm. Mm. And I found the title and the solution, the, the idea behind the book, really. Mm. One day when I was just paging through uh, the Oxford book or dictionary of quotations, mm. I'm a... I'm, a, I'm incurably inquisitive. Yeah. I read dictionaries, I read encyclopedia, I read anything I can lay my hands on. And I was paging through this, and I saw that quotation from Voltaire, and suddenly I realized what it was that had now been plaguing me and terrorizing me for years to understand precisely what it was that created this conflict in this man that I'd spoken to. Yeah. That gave me the title, and it gave me the idea of taking a prison warder like him and putting him on trial for his life after killing seven people. Um, That's really where the story developed from that point on. The crux of the the courtroom drama, as this um, lawyer takes on his case, is that he puts it to the judge that to ask these young men to be both shepherds and butchers was an impossible psychological yes. demand. And it's really a book, a lot of it's about the psychological consequences of apartheid on young white men who've had to go through... Or, um, so the warder who you call Leon Labeskachny, he he's gone into the prison service to avoid conscription. Yes. So I, I want to now follow up with both of you about specific details whose factual status I was not sure about, or, you know, the fact that the, 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 the kind of creative elements yes. of your books made me a bit sort of, where am I? So, Chris, you, 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 in, in your book, Leon Lobeskachny, he's this young, he's 17 when he enters the prison service to avoid conscription, and we're told that on his, sec, on his first day, he's made to pick yes. out a man um, at random yes. from the waiting, you know, gall- from, the, from the men who are on death row, and the very next day, without any training, without any screening, without any preparation, without any briefing, as a kind of initiation, he has to lead this man yes. to, to, to the gallows. Yes. Was that true? That part is true. Mm-hmm. This is exactly how it was related to me by Johann Steinbach. Okay. He went into the prison service to avoid being sent to Angola. He was due to have a six-month training course. He went through the first three months. They were short-staffed. They took him out of the college, put him in central prison in Pretoria as mm-hmm. a prison warder. Now, what happened in truth, and I didn't put this in the book, or maybe I did, he fell asleep on duty one night, and a, and a senior officer in Mufti came in and slapped him and knocked him off his chair. But Steinbach had been recruited by the prison service to play rugby for them. They went around the schools and picked the best rugby players and said, come and join the service and you don't have to go to the army. Mm. So he was a pretty burly rugby front forward Mm. and he got up and he gave the officer a good hiding Mm. and then he was prosecuted for insubordination and sleeping on duty and assault on an officer but the rugby fraternity within the prison service wanted him to continue playing so they settled this is the truth Uh, it's not in the book they then settled the disciplinary proceedings on the basis that he would be transferred away from that officer but still in Pretoria, because they needed him to play hooker for the rugby team. So they put him on death row as a prison warder there. Mm. And as he told me, on that first day, he was taken to the cells where the prisoners who were going to be hanged the next morning were kept, and the, the officer, warrant officer said to him, pick one. And he said, why? And he said, because you're going to help us hang him tomorrow. Mm. And the next day, he escorted that prisoner, as you mentioned, holding by the sleeve here, mm. right onto the gallows, onto the, the trap doors, stood next to him, experienced all that emotion that I tried to describe in the book. And then, of course, he had to go and clean up 
and bury that same prisoner. Mm. That literally is how it was told to me. I'm a trained lawyer. I've seen people telling lies, and that one I don't. I couldn't see anything incongruous, improbable, or wrong in that recounting. Right. I've got another one. I'm going to come back to another query like that. Um, but Grace, so when I read when I read your book, um, something that I began to wonder about um, was so. When you're writing it, a, a sympathy, obviously, for Julie Ward and, and her family comes through very strongly in your writing um, about what she must have gone through, what sounds, although we, the murder is still unresolved. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is regarded as a murder, but it's, 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 still, uns- it's yeah. still unresolved. But by all accounts, a, a horrifying um, death. Um, so you write about her father and his He's basically devoted his life to trying to find out the, the truth of, of his daughter's murder. He's a wealthy man, hotel owner, so he had the, the finances to do it and he's been going to Kenya for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, at the same time, you, are, you, you read his, 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 his book, uh, which is called The Animals Are Innocent? Yes. That's right. That was his, um, the title of his book. And you're sort of finding... Um, how it's, uh, you're finding the difficulties of his book in, in that he, he comes in with a very polarized idea of British efficiency and Kenyan corruption. He comes in with this binary, which is a kind of colonialist binary, and a lot of your book is a fascinating excavation of how colonial and white imaginaries continue to play out in, in this case. Uh, and, you know, he eventually finds that, that that was not an accurate rendition of what happened. So, you know, can you talk us through that a bit? But then I also wanted to know from you personally the, the difficulty in, in managing both the human sympathy for, for, for the family, but also this, the more sort of distanced um, analysis of his, of his book as an academic. Mm-hmm. So I'll start with the last question. Thank you. That was the hardest part about it, writing, because you're dealing with a horrible, horrible murder of this woman who we don't know um, exactly how she dies, but we know it was a horrible mm. murder, one way or another, that there's no doubt about that, because all we're left with is part of her left leg and part of her jaw and some of her ribs that are found later. The rest of her body seems to have been burned to ashes, so mm. yes, it's a horrible murder. And a falsified autopsy report. Yes. So you're dealing with the murder, then you're dealing with the layers of cover-up, very blatant. But even right from the moment of finding her remains, when now that they found the remains, her father thinks they're looking for his daughter who's stuck in the game reserve, but they end up find, he's not prepared to find a dead daughter, never mind the ashes of his daughter, and that's what he finds. And the policemen think, okay, so case closed, can we go? And they're ready to leave these remains in the middle of the game reserve. So it's all those that's just difficult to deal with on the one hand. On the other hand, there is the, the texts about the case, and it's texts on both sides of the divide, but the Kenyan texts, which were deeply misogynist sometimes, deeply problematic, deeply um, cold and flippant sometimes about what had happened, and the British texts, which and I try to explain this return to a particular very problematic racist archive by seeing it as a moment of crisis, that these writers are confronted with this horrible moment. They do not know how to make sense of this, so they fall back to the familiar, and which is the familiar archive. It's a familiar mm-hmm. set of ideas, received knowledge about Kenya, about Africa, about black people, and ultimately her father as well falls into this template. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that that was very hard for me to, to, to do. And I must tell you that for me throughout writing the book, the one reader I worried, or the readers I worried most about were the family her father, her mother, her brother. I kept wondering how they would read it, what they would make of it. And of course, as fate would have it, and fate is an interesting player in the book, but as fate would have it, my publisher is based in pretty much her hometown. So one way or another, they'll learn about the book. Mm. And your publisher was on the trip which she took across Africa, which was a very 
startling thing to find strange out. Strange coincidence, yeah. yes. Yeah, very strange coincidence. Is that that letter at the back of the book? Yes. yes. Is that your publisher? Yes. Oh, okay, Stephanie I didn't realize that. Yes, she was on the same trip mm. and, with, and actually remembered her first hand and she remembers where she was seated in the truck because they had a long several month trip from the UK to Nairobi. Mm. And I didn't know this because I knew Stephanie Newell as a colleague, as a scholar. I'd read her work and all that. And when she, she asks me at a conference, so what are you working on? What else are you working on? And I start telling her this and she completely just freezes over. And I think, okay, I'm used to this reaction because it's a strange case. And she tells me, oh, I knew her. I was on that trip, and I haven't wrapped my head around that to date. Mm. Mm. But she was kind enough to do an afterword for me um, in the book, and just, and that's yet another text about the the case that we're trying to curate, mm. so to speak. Mm. Um, well, l let me come back to you, Chris. So, I mean, talking about research subjects that one invests in and, and perhaps over-invests in. From my, for, for my own part, I've had a similar thing with, with, the, with the life, extraordinary life and times of Dimitri Tsafendas, um, the assassin mm -hmm. of Favut, right? Yep. Who has obsessed me for, for years. And I've also been tracking, in a similar way to you, I think, the cultural afterlives and aftertexts and rumors and, you know, the, the, the famous myth that he a tapeworm told him to kill Favut mm. and so on, and you know, this, this whole archive of, of, of strange apocryphal information. So, Tsafendas was, was deemed insane by the apartheid judiciary, uh, <clears throat> but, uh, at, you know, to rob his act of all political significance, although he gave, at some points, very coherent reasons for his, um, for his act, and at other times, incoherent reasons for his act. Um, he was, he was deemed uh, unfit to you know, stand trial, but he was nonetheless placed in the hanging jail, mm. in earshot of the gallows, yep. for, until he became an old man. So, uh, you know, there's a calculation in here that he, he, he must have heard perhaps over a thousand hangings. So this is treatment of a mentally ill man who was, you know, Accommodated in the, the center of the hanging jail um, until '94, when he was transferred to, to a, a hospital and, and kind of forgotten about. Um, so I've, I've always thought it's one of the most vindictive and, and often forgotten human rights, rights violations that comes down to us from, from, that, from that place. Um, so I was, I was then very struck to find that suddenly he makes an appearance in the book. So I also wanted you to ask you about the factual status I can be this pedantic yes. about this passage, because you have um, the man you've created, Leon Labuskachny, talking about a night that he spends talking to the old man, as they yes. call him, Safendas, in his sort of two-cell living conditions. So, um, you know, how, how am I supposed to read that? Um, the the factual parts are these. Steinbach spent a day in Safendas' company. The old man was there. He had two cells. It was like a little suite mm. on death row in a special section, B section, right next to the little chapel where the, the prisoners to be executed had their last service before they went up to the gallows. Um, no one was allowed to talk to Safendas. He was allowed to receive newspapers, mm. and he was fanatical about cutting out political articles and keeping them in a box. And some of the prison warders tormented him by stealing his box when he was out of his main cell, and then he'd almost go berserk. Mm. And Steinberg got ang became angry when that happened on a particular day. So he had he went and remonstrated with the warrant officer, who's really the man in charge of the execution process. And uh, the way he told it to me, the warrant officer threw the box of newspaper cuttings at him, spilled all over the floor, he packed everything back in the box, and then went and gave it back to... Old, uh, he called him Mr. Tsafendas, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they got talking, and Tsafendas... Uh, told him, I know what you guys are doing here. 
and the conversation developed from that point onwards. Now, I did use a bit of the liberties that a, a writer of creative nonfiction has, uh, but what, he, what struck me was that he told me that Tafendas said to him, I know, he said to Tafendas, when Tafendas complained, you're treating me very cruelly, Tafendas said to him, um, but why? Why are you treating me like this? And he said, because you killed Favut. And then Tafendas said to him, but you don't know the whole truth. You think you do. You get taught things at school, but do you know the real truth? The real truth can only be told to you by people who have lived through it, through those events. Mm. And then he said to him, the people who recruited me to kill Favut were Rudy and Foster. Mm. And that explains one of the impossibilities, the improbabilities of Tafendas actually being given a job in Parliament when he was the product of a mixed relationship, Mozambican mother and a Greek father, when he had several criminal convictions in different jurisdictions, when his application for a visa to South Africa had been refused on numerous occasions, then suddenly one day he gets in. I know you like conspiracy theories. <laughs> I'm listening he, carefully. He gets in. He gets in, and the next day he's working in the House of Parliament. Mm. And then he kills Tavut. Mm. Mm. And then, as you hinted at earlier, he's, he's judged to be criminally insane, criminally not in not responsible for his actions, and instead of being sent to treatment, which the law required at the time, he's being housed on death row, where not a sound can be heard outside those walls, and the prison warders like Leon Labaskachny were dismissed on the spot if they disclosed even to their wife or their mother what work they were doing inside. They were dismissed if they told a psychiatrist or psychologist that they consulted what work they were doing. They were allowed to consult a psychiatrist, but they were not allowed to tell him why they were there. Mm. Anyway, so that's the Tafenda story. Fascinating. I just wanted to read, I, I won't ask you who's, how much of this is you, how much of this is Tafenda, Mr. Tafendas, or how much is Steinberg, but at one point, uh, Tafendas says to the warder, only those who make history know the truth, those who write it down rely on second-hand information, and those who read it have no way of knowing whether what they read is the truth or not they are doomed to be forever uncertain, which is worse than being ignorant. Very... I think that's, I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of my interpretation of what Safendas would have said. An intuitive inhabiting yeah. of it, yeah. Um, Grace, so y y your, your title, A Death Retold in Truth and Rumor. So if one glances at that, it seems like truth is going to be the good thing and rumor is going to be the bad thing. But actually, it seems to be almost, there's, there's a kind of opposite, the opposite almost unfolds. So mm -hmm. can you, why were you so interested in rumor and what is rumor doing in this book? So, uh, well, we went with the title we, and we workshopped it with my um, two series editors. And I must say, I'm very lucky to have series editors who are very, um, open to exploring this, especially the title and the cover, because many publishers, as many people know, tend to tell you, listen, this is the title we are going with, this is the cover we're going with. So mm -hmm. this one we're able to arrive on at one that worked for all of us. And I'm excited for you that you'll have that mm -hmm. privilege, because Headley's book will be coming next year, so look out for that. Um, but yes, because I wanted, I consistently wanted to explore this boundary between what is considered truth and what is considered unreliable and illegitimate. Mm. And because this is a murder that had played out in all these different terrains of truths, mm. I wanted an, a title that would signal both that binary between truth as scientific, as legal, as fact-based, and rumor is suspect, as speculative, as unreliable, as illegitimate. So I wanted a title that would signal that, but at the same time subvert that. And my book tries to subvert that, because in the case of rumors, and just to answer the second part of your question, it is a genre that holds a very serious place in ordinary people's lives and experiences. And especially in the Kenyan context, where you're dealing with many decades of uh, a largely compromised legal, um, legal system that would never produce reliable truths. So in that context, then, 
rumors actually, and during those decades, rumors had a lot more truth than the truths that were being produced yes. mm. in, the, in the state institutions. Mm. So for me, I had to take these rumors on the basis of the context within which they're being produced. And a lot of the time, in some instances, they actually preempted actual truths later on that would emerge mm. that, oh yeah, by the way, actually, you see that rumor, it was the truth. Mm. So I was, I was interested in that. But beyond that, beyond the factuality or the veracity of rumor, I was interested in the kind of work that rumor does the ways in which rumor allows people to articulate a whole range of anxieties, of concerns, to work through their value systems. Mm. So it, there's a certain job that rumor does, mm. especially in the Kenyan context, that I was interested in tracking and mm. thinking through. Mm -hmm. No, it was a very interesting part of the book for me, and I hadn't really got to that understanding of, of rumor before. As you say, a preemptive truth, mm -hmm. um, whereas official truths were lagging behind or were you know, subject to disinformation at many levels. Um, let me ask you each one more question and then I'll, I'll open it to everyone else. Um, so Chris, I suppose inevitably I have to ask you about the film that's been made about your book. I'm always trying to think what's, what's an interesting question one can ask about Ooh. films and books because you know, there's, a lot of very <laughs> there's a lot of very standard questions one can ask. Um, but yeah, I, I, well, maybe I'll just. What, do you, what, what was it? What was it like seeing seeing it trans, transferred to the screen? You know, I, I have mixed feelings about it. I was not involved in in the making of the movie. I, I helped them a little bit with this the screenplay because they got some things just so wrong that they had to fix them. Um, what did they, What did they get wrong? I'll give you an example. Uh, they had senior lawyers who are of the Kenyan variety as well, wearing British bibs and uniforms and using the British tradition of, a, of what happens in a courtroom. They have them addressing each other as my China. <laughs> How's it my China was the one sure. thing I read. That's uh, slang gone wrong. That was the most obvious one, but I tried to fix all of those things by making the thing formal. They wanted to incorporate in the movie a love affair between the prosecutor and defense counsel. They changed the one character to a female because they thought that would... There were still traces of it left there. <laughs> yes, there are. They are. Meaningful glances. The other, the other thing I can say about the, the film is this. My mother taught me to say a good thing if you can't think of it. I'll say this about the film. It's a different medium. They've got 90 minutes to tell a story, to grip the audience's attention. Uh, whereas a novelist or a writer can write as many pages as they like. A writer can have as many interwoven themes in their book and they can be subtle. Mm. They can paste things. You can break things into chapters so that when the reader is overwhelmed at a particular place, they can put the book down, sleep on it, and come back the next day and reread that chapter or read the next one. The film can't do that. They've got 90 minutes to attack you, like a game of football. And they do it with overwhelming sounds and the vision, the views, the sights that you have. They also attack you in a space where you share with other people. Mm whereas a writer attacks the reader in their private space, mm -hmm. on the toilet, in bed, in the bus, wherever. So what I try to stress here is that we're talking about two different things completely. Mm -hmm. When I complained about the, the script and I, or screenplay, and I did, they told me that they couldn't develop all the themes in the book. Because one of the themes in the book that I was particularly fond of and proud of was the doubts that were engendered in the mind of the, the defense lawyer, Weber, mm. who starts off as being completely against capital punishment. He's also reluctantly being drawn into this trial. He then learns about the execution process and all the brutalities that happened there. But at the same time, he learns about the brutalities of the murders mm. that took those men onto the gallows. Yeah. And he comes out of it, and the final scene, which is not in the movie, is he's now back on an aeroplane from Pretoria to Durban to his wife and his family. And he reads in the evening paper that they hanged six small men that morning in Pretoria. Mm. 
And on the next page he reads that there had been a murder here and another murder over there and a man killed his wife and someone shot himself. Yeah. And that's when the final words in the novel come out as in the spiral of killing there's a beginning but no end. Mm -hmm. So all of that, none of that, is in the movie. They've taken the brutality of the execution process, the participation of the white warders and the mostly black men being hanged. And they've presented it as an apartheid movie, mm. which was not my design. Mm. I wanted it to be a, a book about the evils of making people kill on behalf of the state. Yes, yes. I didn't want the sympathies to be with the murderers. That's why they play a lesser role in the book. I wanted the sympathies with the people, and we employ others as well, to do our killings and our dirty work for us. Prison warders, police, pilots, you can think of many people who are doing our dirty work. Mm. That, that, that really does come across strongly because reading the book, it's like a counterpoint of the court case and the experience of the warders, but then the case histories of the men who are on death row. So yes. it, it really is that, 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 that to and fro, the push and pull is, yes. is, is, is a very strong experience of reading the book. Um, Thank you. So, Grace, uh, the, you know, going back to this image of, of Julie Ward and the chimpanzee, um, the, the, you know, so I'm, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in questions of, I guess, um, environmentalism and literature. And your book, it, it gives a very fascinating portrait of, I think at one point you call them the humanitarian and the wildlife industries in Africa, right? Mm -hmm and that, that Kenya is a sort of iconic culture of nature globally, right? Mm -hmm. Masamara, Masai, Serengeti, safaris. So th th this case really, it, it gets caught up in this whole complex history of this way that a certain kind of um, nature in Africa is produced. Um, and you know, you, 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 at one point you you cite Njabula Ndebele's remarkable essay called Game Lodges and Leisure Colonialists about what it means for him as a, as a black South African man to go to a game lodge and how estranging he finds it um, as to who's, you know, you know, this sort of colonial lag, really. In some, well, it's, it's a complex essay. So, you know, can you, can you speak a bit about that? Because it's a, it's a complex story. And I also wondered why does... Can you still have that iconicity and that cachet of sort of, you know, the Kenyan Highlands and, and, and the whole Corin Blixen thing? Why is it still there globally? Mm -hmm. I think it's still there because meats die hard. It's, mm. it's, it's, and it's such a deep-rooted myth um, that, for a, that we've invested a lot of time and money and thought in giving it new life. Mm. So, and that's one of the the, 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 the the tricky things about the packaging of Kenya as a tourist destination, that it is a packaging that started within uh, sort of British settler colonialism, but it is continued post-independence by the post-independent state, by the, uh, the independent Kenyan state, but with the same exploitative relationship to the communities around the game reserve. And this is part of where I also capture the Maasai communities' conflicted responses and their conflictedness about whether or not they're going to put themselves out there in, trying, in helping to get to the bottom of this murder because they're not exactly on the family side, but neither are they on the state side because they feel abandoned and, and alienated by both systems. So that's part of it, but the larger, the other part of it is of course Julie Ward's presence in Kenya is as a wildlife photographer and as a wildlife tourist and she finds herself in this space, and at the same time, she's at that junction between this space, this space that's been produced as sort of pure nature, you still have wildlife, you can enjoy it, but at the same time, you've got a sort of semi-dysfunctional state and a violent state that might be complicit um, in this murder. So I wanted to capture that, but also to link it to contemporary debates around wildlife conservation mm. and to complicate our assumptions about it, because we all are more or less on the same page about the need to conserve the environment, the need to conserve nature and all, but it gets 
tricky when we go down to the nitty-gritty and ask ourselves at what cost and what are the invisible costs of this and who is being exiled from these conversations from the very beginning. And again, the case of Kenya and the, and, and the Maasai primarily, but many other communities is a wonderful example because these are communities which were forcibly displaced so that we could create these wildlife conservation spaces. And so many generations later, we're still sitting with bruising poverty, but also with wildlife tourism as one of the major forex earners for the country. Mm. Mm. So that's what I wanted to capture. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. No, thank you so much. And now this is going to sound... <laughs> Thank you so very much. And this is going to sound choreographed, but I promise you we did not arrange this because that's what I was going to say about his book. I've been, I've been raving about it to all my friends and colleagues. I already have one colleague thinking of reading it and putting it as a set work. But I just want to say, again, the same thing, that this is a book that I wish not just every South African, but every reader across the world would read. And in the case of South African readers, I've been, I've listened to so many debates and, you know, on talk show, talk, uh, radio talk shows and TV talk shows about should we bring back the death sentence because we're having all these horrible crimes. And it is true, we have such particularly brutal kinds of crime mm -hmm. in this country that I can, I understand where people who argue for death sentences are coming from. But reading this book, and I had no doubt initially about what I felt about this, but reading the book, I kept wishing that each of these people who call into radio stations to say this is what needs to happen. It's a book that needs to be read because not so much because it's, it's not about preaching against or for, but about clarifying and really giving that detail, that minute detail about what happens and can we really can we really afford this but most importantly just what you said at the end that we're busy outsourcing these horrible literally destructive work we outsource this kind of work mm -hmm. to these butchers and we our hands stay clean and so it's very easy for us to you know technically say this but that's the more reason why everybody mm -hmm. needs to read this book so thank you so much for writing it <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thank you both. I think you've, you've done my job of summing up, but uh, for documentary fictions and fictionalized documentary, a beautiful combo, and indeed, I also wish everyone would read that account of, of, of capital punishment. So thank you, and, and thank you all for being here.